Once upon a time, there was an instructional designer who wanted to create learning experiences where people could share their stories. But what if nobody chimed in? What if the stories people chose were entertaining but not relevant? Or what if storytelling took too much time and got everyone off track? Hi, lab mates. Welcome to the Social Learning Lab, a podcast about social learning at work. In today's episode, we'll chat with an expert who will share what she knows about bringing learners together through the power of story. Hi, lab mates. I'm Katie. Today, I'm here with Nicole, Rocio, and Diego. We are so excited to welcome Hadia Nuridin to the Social Learning Lab today. Hadia has over two decades of experience in learning design and development. With Duets Learning, she has helped countless individuals and organizations achieve their goals through her expert knowledge and guidance. In addition to project work, Hadia is a thought leader who frequently speaks at conferences internationally, is the author of two learning and development books and several articles, and teaches courses on learning design for the Association for Talent Development and the University of San Diego. Finally, she is ATD's 2023 Talent Development Outstanding Professional Award recipient, and she also received the Guild Master Award from the Learning 2023 Conference. So thank you so much for joining us, Hadia. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, we're really excited. I read your book, Story Training, and I'm really excited to begin asking you some questions about that. So you wrote this book, Story Training, Selecting and Shaping Stories That Connect. So I want to know, first of all, your thoughts on what is it about stories that helps us connect with each other? Well, for me personally, I think that everybody's favorite topic is themselves. <laughs> and when you tell a story, if people can recognize themselves in that narrative, because you, you sometimes it's frustrating when people just say storytelling. When it's not, we've all heard stories that are boring. We all heard stories that we don't resonate with. And so it's not just a story. I mean, that's not the thing. It's the work that we put into the story with finding what will connect with audiences. What can we say to help them recognize themselves, to put them on that journey? Um, you know, our goal as well as, as storytellers is not just to take an experience and transplant it into their heads. We want to make that sort of connection, a fusion between my experience and your experience, and not even really match the details. It's that core, that that human experience. You know, you may not have done anything that you consider exciting, climbing a mountain, you know, all that stuff. However, we've all felt lost. We've all felt fear. We've all felt that. And so in your stories, if you're able to make that shine, then you can connect to people and sort of reflect their experience back to them. And I think that ultimately makes people feel seen and they're able to go on that journey with you because they feel like they're alongside you. Yeah, and I, I know the word connection, stories that connect, that's part of your subtitle and it is a big theme throughout the book, um, using mm -hmm. stories in this way. So, and you know, we being obsessed with social learning here, you know, connection is a thing that we think about a lot too. Mm -hmm. So I'm curious what you think in your experience, the role that connection plays in workplace learning. You know, I, I've been on my own, sort of journey with connection for about five years or so because before I didn't really see that connection with social learning with other people and um, how that connection helps us support others and how we can feel supported and the value of that 
And now I do. And I think one of the things that I, I learned or that resonates most with me is that, you know, that the classroom experience, I think, can often feel very artificial. It feels sort of isolated from the work experience. And the more we can combine those two together and mimic what they're experiencing in real life, you know, so for example, um, if, you know, in a, in a, sometimes when we're designing a class and putting it together, we're just like looking for any sort of exercise that matches the objective. And does this work? Are they talking to each other? Blah, blah, blah. But I've sort of taken steps now of saying, well, how will this look like on the job, on the actual job? Who will be involved? Will they be by themselves doing this or will other people be involved? So I'm trying to extend that experience outside of the classroom into work. So I guess to answer um, your, your question is, because work for the most part is social and social doesn't just mean talking to one another and being around people in my mind. It's just, you know, having the experience to have to support others and have them support, even if you're a lone instructional designer or developer, but the people that you're serving are part of that ecosystem are part of that community. And so trying to create authentic experience almost requires a social aspect to it. If not, then it's artificial and it's sort of separated and lobbed on to the end just to do an exercise because they haven't talked to each other in a while. But the, you know, the truth is, is if that's how it's gonna be on the job, then that's how it should be in the experience as much as, as feasible. And as of course, a little bit more difficult to do when you have asynchronous e-learning, but there, you know, there have been some ways of having little videos or having coaches that you can talk to that you can click on throughout. So there's ways to sort of, you know, you know, create that. But at the end of the day, I think what you always have to answer, you know, for yourself and through your research and your own experiences, it's not just social, but what does social mean? Just like storytelling, it's not just stories. It's not just people, you're talking to people. What does it mean? What does it do to enhance the experience in the classroom? And how does it connect to the work that we're doing outside of, on the job? Yeah, and that's really important because the, also the more authentic the experience is, the more invested the people are gonna be because they're gonna be able to connect themselves in that moment to probably a situation that they have been in or a situation that they're gonna encounter themselves in. And if they can't make that connection, then more than likely they're just not going to be yeah. invested in what they're making. Because we're not often, it's not just the skills on the job that mm -hmm. we're teaching. It's we're teaching them how to do it along with those skills, but how do we incorporate others? You know, how do we, I, I remember this class that I, it was a part of a class that I taught for ATD called Scenario Basic Learning. And there was this sort of just abbreviate this, this class that was an example and it was just HTML asynchronous, nothing special at all about it. Um, but what it was is it was teaching doctors how to handle situations where the, the living will of a patient said, do not resuscitate, but the family's like you had better resuscitate. And so how does a doctor navigate that? So obviously there's no multiple choice there of do you just flip the switch or not? I mean, you can't do that. So it was, it was the knowledge that they needed to make that decision, but it was teaching the behaviors behind it as well, that they had to reach out to different, you know, to clergy, to lawyers, because it was state by state. They had to, re they, it was teaching not just that decision of this is what a living will is, and this is how to communicate. It was throwing you in that environment and saying, 
who can I depend on? Who's going to be a part of this decision? It's not just me making it. It's a community of making it. And I need their support. How do I reach out for that support? And just the way the course was built taught them that in addition to the skills needed to require something like that. So it just creates this, it created a very authentic experience with just HTML links, no, no video, nothing, just pictures. That was it. So I, I'll, I'll never forget that class. It was really, it was interesting. I only saw a sample of it. I didn't even see the whole thing, but it's like, that was the first time I saw a really good reflection in asynchronously learning and something that was of great consequence, but could have been done in a very almost rudimentary way. Yeah, I think it goes back to what you were saying about intention. Like you have to be intentional about those activities that you're designing. It's not just an activity to get people in an activity and say, oh, here, let's just get them together. Let's get them to talk. Like you said, no, mm-hmm. like what is the purpose of them talking? Because maybe they don't have to talk, right? Like maybe there's no purpose and then talking to each other. So what right. are we really trying to what are we really trying to get out of this activity? And I think that that part, people are so focused on those learning objectives that they forget that everything that you do has to have an outcome, an intention, not just the learning objectives. That right, designing. right. Because there's, the learn, there's learning outcome and there's the performance outcome. You know, like what exactly. do we expect them to be able to do and what does that look like and how can we tap into that as well throughout the being realistic, of course, because we, have, we do have mm-hmm. a lot of limitations and what we can create yeah. especially sometimes it's a technology sometimes we just don't have time to create this immersive experience the way we we would like to but yeah like i said even with the, with that class there are some some really basic ways that we can pull that off i say it could have been a really awful class like i could just picture you know what is the living will xyz yes. but instead they use story and so yeah such an interesting example and it's a hyper it was like you said a hyper social moment so not even not learning but the thing they have to do is hyper social they have to talk to these communities these different members of the community really interesting it's mm-hmm. a great example i appreciated that in your book you talk about you know ways to use stories for training so i mean we're all familiar with stories but you really you know, took us into the mind of a, a learning designer, you know, and how can we, a facilitator, how can we, you know, bring in the stories and use them to achieve our goals, like you were just saying. So you talk mm-hmm. about like in terms of connection, you know, ways like bridging the course to reality. So you kind of touched on that already with your example, thinking mm-hmm. old mm-hmm. and new, and then also creating empathy. So I'd love to hear you speak a little bit more about any of those really about how you see them connect, creating that connection. Yeah. So I started sort of delving into this idea of the science behind story. And one thing that I emphasize when I talk about all these different strategies is you, you really, you, first of all, you need intent. That's the number one thing that's important. But whatever you're, you're trying to tap into when it comes to something like empathy is how does that connect your performance? Specifically, a story is a tool. That's all. There are many ways to get people to um, feel a connection to someone else. There's many ways to sort of reinforce that, that, that empathy. You know, there's one thing, I think I may say this in the book, and there's maybe one, one thing I could have regret is this idea that you can create empathy. Like you, you can't really create it. All you can do, um, just like with learning, we can't force people to learn. What we do is we create environments that support it. And sometimes some people we know are going to just shut off as soon as you try it getting a little too deep. I always tell people don't open doors you can't close. 
you know, when you start to get a little too deep, people will shut off. But I think in our minds, we think empathy is like this. Oh, we trigger this. People are going to be so happy. And so, no, that's not how it works. People respond to this, this in different ways. So you have to be, you know, have a lot of intent and think, what am I trying to do? And people are going to, you know, respond to them, respond to it in multiple ways. You know, I think the most important thing or what I just try to get to again is that that authenticity of the moment that we're preparing them for and what that's going to look like. And whatever comes with that, I want to bring it along with me. And it's not always this deep emotion. It's not always. It's just preparing them for whatever environment they are going to have to work in, what they're going to navigate. And it can't, it's not always like we think about, you know, soft skills. Yeah, if I'm learning leadership skills and I'm in a meeting with an employee and I have to give them some um, some feedback that's not the greatest, that's automatically going to trigger some emotion. And we do want you to feel what it's like to be in the person receiving that feedback, with which shoes they're going to be in and how they're going to feel. So there's that, but there's also technical training as well, where people think, well, where's the emotion with that? You know, I started my career in technical support and it was a lot of emotion, <laughs> my technical support, because it was very intimidating, it was very scary, it was very nerve wracking. And you didn't know what twists and turns things would take, you didn't know what they would come up with. And this was before you could just be like, let me dial into your computer. And it was just all, oh, what are you seeing? What are you seeing? What's happening? You're too quiet. What's going on? You have a kid that can help you. I mean, this is like when we were in Windows 95, you know. So this was a brand new concept that people had computers in their home, let alone know how to do their own tech support, which is really what they were doing. And we were walking them them through it. So there was a lot of sensitivity that had to be involved. There was a lot of patience. There was a lot of... and so. It, when we learned to talk them about tech support, it wasn't just about, I mean, this is, of course, I wasn't thinking this is all in retrospect, but when I think about approaching a topic like that now, that's like the number one thing we should have learned was how to help somebody navigate that, which is a whole different skill than me doing it, whole different skill than me editing those files. It's walking people who have never seen this before how to edit a file and how to type it just perfectly or else the consequences they will not be able to boot into windows and open up that file again right so those were the there's always something connected to it even like payroll you know and, and all of that so really trying to what is the what does that really look like and it's hard to get out of SMEs what that looks like to be honest you know it's a challenging thing to get what that essence is but as much as you can you know try to created, I think, you know, we what, what I want people to do to walk away from training is not that I took training. I want them to feel like I experienced that. I lived that. I did that. Not that I was trained in it, but I did it and I know what to do because I experienced it. And that you can only bring about that feeling in some sort of authentic situation. I also like to stress that interaction doesn't happen through the hand. It happens through the mind. Right. So just click, 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 click is not interaction. You know, interaction is evaluating, is critical thinking. So you don't have to have click, 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 click. You can just ask compelling questions and find a way, a consequential way for them to answer those questions. And sometimes it's offline. Sometimes it's go have a conversation with your boss. Sometimes it's have a conversation or get a story from someone else about a bad customer service experience they've had. 
these types of things can happen offline and sort of add to that experience. So yeah, authenticity is key. And I think stories can lend to, definitely lend to that. But a story isn't always just A to B, it's also involving, can involve other people and the environment as well. Sure, and and you, you, know, you shared about, so like from the facilitator, you know, thinking of stories to incorporate in the learning experience, but then also inviting learners to share, participants to share their stories. So I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about that and what you've noticed, you know, how that affects the way that they connect with each other, um, whether you've noticed vulnerability, empathy coming into play there with the story sharing. So, you know, I, I stress this all the time that the point of storytelling is not for you to get up there and tell a story. That is absolutely not the point. The point is for you to create an environment where people feel comfortable. Even if I would say sharing their stories would be great, but it's also just tapping in. So they don't have to do it verbally, but just tapping into a memory of that. If she felt that, then I felt that. I can feel that as well. So yeah, there's that story that I tell in the beginning of the book about how I was, some of us may have been before, teaching managers, even though I had never managed before. And one thing that came up, I developed this class, one of my, I still consider it my, my flagship course, the first comprehensive course I created was in project management. Um, so I created all the, I was really heavily into the Sims. So I started, if it weren't for the Sims, I wouldn't be the designer I, I am now because the Sims definitely helped me understand sort of spatial space and narrative and flow and connection is really the, how I learned all of this really. So I was just into that and I said, I'm going to dabble in scenarios and I'm going to have all these different characters. And I had one character who was very hostile, you know, throughout. And, you know, it was just sort of like a hero that I came up with, but it really became sort of typical in that the, the group that had the hostile character talked the most, they connected the most. The ones that had the good characters barely even engaged. And I'm like, isn't that typical that the employees that, are the worst, take up all of our energy, and then we wonder why the good one quits. And this one says because we've ignored the good one. So that sort of almost became became a part of it, right? And so sometimes some groups would get so angry with this fictional character. And it didn't occur to me two years later that what they were doing was they were tapping into their own memories. They were giving this woman backstories that obviously did not exist. <laughs> I didn't say that. I didn't say that she, you know, was divorced, a divorced alcoholic. Like you are referring back to someone in your life, the manager that you had that were bring, was bringing home their home stress and dumping it on your team. Like that's what you are connecting this with and I thought wow this is this is sort of interesting but one thing that I had to do was you know I think the thing that reminded me what this character came from was that it was I was early in my career but way earlier than that I was that character like I was her because I was mad that I had a degree and I had a job that I didn't want to have and so I was, I was kind of hostile, you know, in that environment. And so I began to take offense that they were taking offense to her. And so I remember once in one class, I just had to just stop and just say, let's stop this for a minute. The goal is not to run to, a, her name was Darla. The goal is not to run to fire Darla. Because that's all they were coming to. How can we get rid of her? That's not the goal. And I was like, if you've ever tried to just fire someone because of attitude, good luck. Because that's not the way this works anyway. 
And so we were able to sort of talk about her in a way of what is what is Darla afraid of? Like what, why do you think she's re reacting that way? And so as we begin to talk, the people at the table begin to really go, she's making me feel incompetent, right? She's making me, so they completely divorced her themselves from what Darla was happening and focused only on her inability, and again, she didn't exist, but her inability to do her job and my inability to get her to do her job made me feel like a bad manager. And that's what I'm mad about, which sort of goes back to why they even took the class in the first place, you know? So all just from this one character, all these emotions were able to, to come up and be addressed that weren't part of my design, that weren't part of the class. I thought they would just be like, ah, ha, ha, funny, you know? They were getting really incensed. So, uh, yeah, that was a, a you know a good example to me of how I was able to just even unknowingly use something like that to really trigger emotions, and then the social aspects of it of them working together, and then them able to reflect and examine what was really what was really happening between this fictional character, them, and then everyone else in their team. That that's powerful. You were able to <laughs> tap into everybody's workplace trauma. Yeah, exactly. Here I am, twenty-seven. Like, what's going on? And even you, you were facilitating. You were facilitating, and your own workplace trauma was activated. So exactly, that's like, exactly. Unintentional. Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. Yeah. So it just really honors that we come to work and to learning at work with all of our stories and all of our experiences. Right. And so, like you said, whether we like in intentionally say, tell me your story, you know, like whether it's like tell the story or think of the story, the stories are there. So I just really love that you're making space for emotion and for past experience. Yeah. And it, I have this, one reason why a lot of people are resistant to stories because they don't want to be vulnerable. They don't want, and they're worried about it. And so one of my classes, I have like this line where it's like open and nope, you know, or anagram with one another where you need to know where the line is, where you're going to be open. And then there's this, I'm not going to touch this, but this is the, this is the thing. The more skill, the more intentional skill you develop in storytelling, the, the nope begins to shrink and the open begins because you know what your triggers are, you know how far you want to go. And once you develop a skill around it, then you're absolutely able to say, you know, I can carve out a piece of this story, but leave this piece alone, you know, because I know that I don't want to open that up. First of all, it may just open up so much, not just for you, but like with Darla, you know, here I'm innocently offering this sacrificial lamb and it just completely opened up all these things that I didn't know would open up. Um, so these things may not just open things for you, but for the people in the room as well. So I would, it was one end, I would say, be careful, but I would also say it's really more about intent. You know, there's being careful, but there's also being intentional about what you want to trigger. Because at the end of the day, that's all you have is intent. You know, people say, what's the point of the story? What is your point? I personally believe that point belongs to the listener. It doesn't belong. I can't dictate what the point in my story is going to be to you. And we all know this because we've told stories to people. And then they, you know, you tell this whole story and they're like, what happened to the puppy? Puppy? You mean the puppy I mentioned in the very beginning? Like, there's nothing to do with the puppy. What are you talking about a puppy for? You know, but they, because they really are worried about these puppies, that is, they're filtering what I'm saying through their own experience what happened to the dog? You know, you're just, 
Like, what are you talking about? So they're going to take away their point. So there's different strategies you can use to make your bring your attention closer to the point because we, we want our attention to come close to the point. You don't want it to completely match it again because in order for them to really resonate with that story, they have to filter it. You want them to look inside themselves and say, I've been there. You know, you want to do that as well. But so you don't have point. They have point. You have intention. So all you can do is set forth on that that intention. I I feel like the way you receive a story is kind of personalized and it depends on your life experience. And yeah, you know, it's like when you're rewatching a movie, showing it to your friends and like every time there's a scene that you reacted to, you're like looking at them and they're like, no, they're like total calm. And you're like, what do you mean? That was like the best part of the movie so definitely like a personalized experience before i went on my own i had a mountain of credit card debt and i knew that was the number one thing so of course you're supposed to save money before you start a business but i said no i'm actually going to pay off my debt instead i so i started a business with no savings instead pay off my debt i since ran it back up but the point is the point is is that so in order to pay for it all I actually had two full-time jobs. One was remote and one was on site, but they were headquartered in the same building. So there was an interesting intricacy of how that actually occurred, but I was working them at the same time. Now, later I did it for about a year and had enough money to pay off my debt. Now, for a few years later, I began to tell that story. And to me, I'm just, I'm an American hero. I mean, that's, that's an amazing thing to do. Like that's, that's awesome and great because working two jobs to me is as American as amplified. Everyone, every family member I've ever had has had two jobs, three jobs. I worked two jobs for years and years and years. That is the most basic thing you can do is work two jobs. I don't know how else you're going to get the money if you can't just call up your parents and be like, give me like, I couldn't do that. I had no net. So I had to make a net. So I remember the first time I wrote this story in one of my graduate classes, I have a master's in writing, I got it 10 years ago. And the people in the room were like, oh my God, you're so, you're so, I wish I could do something like that. Now I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. So I get the feedback because you know, we had to write feedback, actual feedback on the back, right? So I remember I went to Corner Bakery and I had my little lunch. I said, let me read this glowing praise for this story, not just for my incredible writing, but for me as a person. They went off on everyone was like, what? Isn't that like stealing? Isn't it stealing time? You lied to all those people. You lied to your mom. I was completely floored. I thought, okay, they're just jealous. As years gone on, I've told this story again, and I get the same reaction. People are just offended. And, you know, now, of course, we talk about sort of the quiet quitting and all that stuff. So this was before then. But like, you're the reason why people don't let people work remote and this, all of that. So I was really surprised. Never to my face, though. Never once to my face. Always in the feedback. You're so great in the feedback. You are terrible, ethically wrong, you know. And I get two things from that. Two things from that. One is that's why I sort of learned that, again, people are listening to their experience. Like, they... They just can't imagine. I think my, my, the editor of my book, because I was going to put it in my book, but I took it out because the editor wrote, this doesn't make you sound like you think it makes you sound. <laughs> what? So, okay. So I took it out. Like, I'm not dealing with it. So years later, I sort of reflected on that and think two things. One is that, again, people are filtering through their own experience as I filtered that experience through mine. 
But one thing in the stories I never put, I never talked about the reason I did it was because I, it was a trauma-informed response. I had no choice. And I was the one working 100 hours a week. I was the one who gave up everything, you know, to make sure that my coworkers were still supported. And yet I could do this. I never talked about that. I was just like, aha, I have two jobs and you don't. You know, so there was that emotional piece that I never revealed and how vulnerable that left me. Not only was I vulnerable before, but possibly made myself even more vulnerable. I could have lost both. One time I was in an elevator with both my bosses and they didn't know it. And I just had that oh my gosh. sitcom about this. I was just like, do what you do. So hmm, I'm just going to get off on this random floor and just get up, you know? So I think there I, is a sitcom there. I know. Yeah, like, totally. <laughs> I put um, myself in such vulnerable positions there. So, you know, I, I guess the, the ultimate point of this is, you know, that's when I learned both about the filtering, but also learned about intent and what did I plan to get from this and how to tap into emotion. And do you think also what you chose to tell about the story, right, did not match your intent, like what you were trying that's right. to get my out of the audience? That, my intent was that you were going to think I was amazing. That was the only, to be honest, to be real, I wanted you to think, because in my mind, to be able to pull something off at the time, mm -hmm. if I'm being honest, I just wanted you to think I was amazing. And when that didn't match, that really set of what what is happening here? And, you know, at the time, I didn't really know about, like, emotion and story and the filtering and all that. So I sort of learned it to that through that process. But it, that was my intent. But they got a different point. <laughs> they got a different point and purpose all together. And a part of it is because of the way I told it and omitted and chose to keep and not keep. Yeah. You, you didn't talk about the struggle that people could identify with. The part where That's you right. were working 100 hours, the part where you were trying to, you met all the expectations of your coworkers, the part where you needed it because it was a trauma response, right? So yeah. people weren't able to fully connect. Right. That. It was, I stuck with the details. The struggle that you were trying to give them wasn't Exactly. Like, exactly. And I was, I stuck with the details and didn't get to the core of that. I didn't, I talked about what I gained, but not what I lost. Yeah. And if I was cheating anybody, I was cheating me because I couldn't do anything else during that time period, you know, mm -hmm. but work those two jobs and, and, and absorb that kind of stress. You know, my boss who was in Arizona, you know, hey, Hadi, I'm coming in town tomorrow. Maybe we can have lunch. I've been looking at my calendar and seeing I have a meeting at lunch at my other company. Like that, you know, it sounds like, oh, that's haha, -ha, but actually it was extremely stressful. And mm -hmm. that was bad. That <laughs> was bad, you know, but I, who's going to give me money? Who's going to help me yeah. support that, you know? So that, you know, that's, that's, I learned a great lesson, obviously, from, from that about, you know, about intent versus purpose. Storytelling. Mm -hmm. yeah. Your book delves into this, but I was curious if you had any tips or strategies that you wanted to share about inviting stories from participants or inviting them to reflect on their stories privately. Yeah. So just like with, I remember, and I think they still do this video, which is all the crazy video. Put a video in your course. We can make a video, 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 video. But a video, watching the video was a passive experience, you know, and so is storytelling if you're just up there telling a story. So in one of the chapters I do I think about inviting people in, 
you know, it could just be as simple as you stopping, and it could do this in e-learning as well, for scenario, as you stopping and say, what do you think happened? And I think part of this is accepting the fact that once the story comes out of your mouth, it's no longer yours. What you're doing now is creating the story of them listening to you, right? So the story begins to morph and change, which means that you have to give control away. And that's very tough. So if I were to say, you know, I was in this situation, I had, I was working the register and this streamer came in and immediately went ballistic. And of course, my urge is to keep going and tell you how this happened. Instead, if you stop and say, what do you think happened next? What would you have done? Has that happened to you? Now, of course, they could derail you and just kind of go, no, <laughs> you know, or, you know, come up with some thing that they say they said or did that was just amazing, you know? So you have to know how to wrangle back control after that. That would have been a good idea, but this is what I did instead, you know? So how do you get them to just at different key points of the story as, you, as you're moving along? What do you think happened next? What would you do? Have you ever been in this situation before? And I find that's a pretty effective way to get them to start thinking and really can immediately you're asking them to connect this scenario to you. Yeah. Or just how would you feel if that happened? You know, so even if they aren't, you know, they haven't been in that situation, they've never worked at a cashier register before, that helps you get to that core again of you felt helpless before, I bet. You know, you felt disrespected. You felt I didn't know what to do before. So even bringing out those questions can help navigate, help you navigate that, that connection between what you're saying, the story, and their experiences. I really love that way of inviting them in to the story and having them connect it to their own experience. And it is so much less passive, you know, when you mm -hmm. integrate that. Yeah. yeah, and you have to be ready for what they bring in as well. And some people could just start over their whole story. Let me tell you what happened to me. It's like, no, that's not. <laughs> I had a very specific question. I want to answer to only that question. You know, so you have to. That, that facilitation skill is such a lost art, you know. And the book really focuses on facilitation, not necessarily design, um, because I just think it's such a lost art. And it's something that is really difficult to do. I know, I think sometimes in L&D, there's this hierarchy of where the facilities, like LMS administrator, facilitator, structural design, but that facilitation skill is just, it's one of the most difficult things you can do. So that, that requires that as well. Yeah. And there's a quote from your book. I just want to read really quickly and then ask a question about it. You wrote, creating an environment where everyone feels comfortable laughing and swapping stories with one another is fuel for learning. So mm -hmm. I'm curious, how can we create, you know, social learning experiences that make people feel this level of comfort and, you know, mm -hmm. ideally there's laughter and sharing and things like that. Well, you absolutely set the tone. You having a good time teaching this course. I think as the facilitator, I think that's the that's the number one thing. Engaging with people, not shutting them down. Even how you facilitate their interactions with, with one another, encouraging them to talk to each other, going over there, seeing how they're talking and engaging. It really is you having a good time, you laughing, you joking, and then, you know, to their comments, you know, joking or whatever. I think you set the tone. What you're doing is the way the course will go. If you're very dry and all of a sudden, they're just not, they're not gonna feel 
the vibe, we don't feel open enough to do that. I mean, some people never will. You know, I say the Western school system did this to us, you know, where this is how school is supposed to happen. This is a serious space. And sometimes it is. Sometimes it is serious. I would say it's always serious, but I say I take the content serious, but not myself, right? So I don't take myself seriously in that way, in that, you know, part of what I'm here to do is to help us navigate this, but I want to set the tone of what the what the content requires. But again, it goes back to that authenticity of what kind of environment they're going to be working in ultimately. And as much as I can connect the tone to that is is good. But, you know, again, I think you setting the pace of you having a good time encourages them to as well. I really like what you said about that, setting that tone. And like you said, when you set a serious tone, you're not setting your audience up to be vulnerable. You're setting them up to be very, like, almost anxious because if you're always serious, it's like you don't really know if it's a safe space to really open up and show your emotions because, you know, like you said, we've been taught to be by this by the book. But sometimes it's not about by the book, it's about going off the book and writing your own story with it. So I really like what you mentioned. Yeah, yeah. And people are always, you know, watching, like they watch your interactions with another student, another student says something vulnerable. And they're, you know, people are watching and see how you react. What are you going to say when that happened? How are other people reacting, you know, to see whether or not is this safe? Is that, is he going to be punished for what he just did? Is he going to be shot down for what he just did? They're, they're, they're watching and they're keeping track. And sometimes I have, you know, what I call the slow packers where they won't say anything. At the end of the class, they're just like slowly packing. It's like, okay, this person obviously wants everybody to leave so they can say something to me. Um, and so sometimes it just ha- it happens at the end and you didn't think that they were paying any attention, but they were really just engaged by watching other people sort of, you know, live that out. But yeah, it's really up to you as the facilitator. To, to set that tone. I think that one of the strongest, right, connections, there's two of them. There's sadness, right? Like when you're sad and everybody's like feeling it and everybody's connected that way, but then laughter. Mm-hmm. Um, when you laugh with other people, it creates this sense of the connection is different. Mm-hmm. Now you feel mm-hmm. like you can be yourself because now we can be silly and now we can joke about it. And now, and like facilitation is an art and not everybody That's right. can. Yeah. Facilitate, right? Like, I mean, but if you can make a room laugh, mm-hmm. if you can make a room laugh in a training, you know, about mm-hmm. like software, that's yeah, a different yeah. level of facilitation. You know? What they laugh at the most is recognition. You know, exactly. it's not just you up there telling a joke. It's I've been through that. I've been through that, yeah. and it was it was ridiculous then, and it's ridiculous now. And so it's that you're you're almost forming a community through those emotions and that is really what the facilitator is doing they are trying to create community among strangers mm-hmm. for this short 16 hours we're all in this together we all we may not know each other but we are all here to experience this as one and you bring all your stuff you bring everything with you but here we're all together and here we're experiencing the same thing and you know that's that's tough to do because first you need to feel, I mean, we have our own stuff, you know, as facilitators mm-hmm. and, you know, sometimes we're not great at community. We're not great at feeling connected just personally. And so you have to walk in there and sort of show that and, and lead that. And 
that's it's not that easy if it doesn't come natural to you as the leader in that regard and and being able to bring out in people that feeling of like oh i'm not the only one that feels the same about this this whole room feels like this so i can actually speak my mind now because no one's going to judge me you know exactly across my table everybody feels like that everybody laughed at the joke so everybody has to feel the same way mm-hmm. that i feel about it so and then when they ask me yeah. as a facilitator okay what do we do about it you say i don't know lunch <laughs> you, know, you don't always have the answer <laughs> Of what they're gonna yeah, have to exactly. do, you know, you know about that. I was at a session the other day where she seemed to be getting everybody really sort of riled up. And have you experienced this? You experienced that? You experienced this? Yeah. Okay, on the next slide. <laughs> but you didn't really give them a outlet for this, so they've. Ex- it's not enough to say we experienced it. It's got to land somewhere. Like there's got to be a landing point where we can sort of agree of at least we can't go and we're not going to go march with pitchforks and try to change it, you know, in that way. But the question is, how are we able to cope with this? What are some strategies we can use even just in our mind to change our perspective? So that's why I mean by don't open doors, you can't close. You know, I think that is, that's, Sort of tricky sometimes when I do my storytelling coaching. My mother, who lives with me, she's in the next room. She's like, So, what are you a therapist now? I'm like, you know, maybe I'm opening too many doors because you know, childhood never ends. So, a lot of the issues that people are facing are from childhood, and you know, you can't, there's nothing, you know, they have to want to do something with that. So, you but you don't know when you're going to hit it until you're right there, and then you're like, Oh, I hit that. So, yeah, it's you have to really make sure that once you start supporting these environments and these communities and vulnerabilities, that once they get there, they find some safety and some psychological safety and some value of being in that experience with you. Yeah. And then, you know, you say everybody's going to receive your story. They're going to find a different point to your story, but there has to be a point to your story as a facilitator too. Like there has to be something actionable that you're trying to get yeah. out of telling. Well, it's intense. Yeah. So it's intense, I'm telling, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I picked this story for a reason. And I want you to, I, I, my hope is that you'll get this out of it. Now, sometimes again, they get something completely different. And sometimes that's great. Like the story with Darla, you know, I just thought yeah. that they would just be like, ah, boo-hoo. But something much bigger come, came out of it. And to be able to corral that, you know, that's the thing. And so now when I sort of approach it, I think, what is my intent here? Wh- why does this story exist? And yeah. in L&D, one thing I always say is we need to focus on stories of transformation. So mm-hmm. what that means is that a change has had to occur. There needs to be a journey. Other than that, it's just what to me separates a story from an anecdote, right? Anecdote is just, I did this and I did that. It's just a retelling. It's like a testimony, a retelling of events, which can be funny, which can be interesting, which we can learn from you. We can learn about you through an anecdote, you know? But, you know, I I always say when it comes to special like leadership training and all that, when you're telling personal stories, think headlight, not spotlight, right? So the spotlight, if you're just telling a story where it's just a spotlight on you, that's, okay but it's not particularly interesting but if you're able to take that light and then use it as a guide for others that's where it gets interesting so this is my life this story is about me but it's not for me it's for you 
So always be thinking of ways, how can I take this experience and what I gained from it, how I changed and how the change affected me and use that to shine a light forward for other people. And just thinking about that in a way really sort of changes. And sometimes I'll think it halfway through a story and think, oh, wait a minute, idea, remember, you know, especially if I'm like entertaining, I'm in this, I can do, wait a minute, the point of this is not just for you to be funny and understand you have to really take a step back and think, how is this going to help them? So, and it always kind of goes back to the change. It always kind of goes back to, I was here, something happened, now I'm here, and this is how that knowledge that I gained, this is what I do now as a result. And that's, other than the transformation, that's the most important part. So what? So what? So this happened to you, you learned something, and well, so what this did is it made me a better leader for this. It made me a better that. It made me a better communicator. It made me realize this. You know, that is, that's sort of the key to the type of stories that we, that we want people to tell. I think that's so impactful to me. Like you said, that storyline, because it's easy to put a spotlight on yourself and say, yes, I got here and this and that. But when you really share that struggle that you got to help you get to that point and then Mm -hmm. show how that point got you to the next point, it really resonates with your audience. I think so much more because they're like seeing like, okay, we're all going through a different path in life, but you struggle just as much as I did. And now I have a guide almost or a mentor that can show me the path and how to do it because I can relate to them now. And it's something that, you know, and if you just go in there and be like, oh yeah, I did this and I'm like this great person. Okay, well, that's cool, but I'm not going to resonate with you. But if you show me that, let's say we went through a similar experience, like you said, if we both went through childhood trauma or we both went through a similar incident in the workplace and we showed how we persevered through that experience and thrive from that, then I think mm-hmm. that's where that story really hits that message so much harder than just being that person in the spotlight. Yeah, and not only is it instructive, but it's also proof that it's possible. And sometimes that's all we need is because something magical, that change may have been something like a, an incredible stroke of luck that you think, well, I'm never going to let that happen. or never going to have that happen to me. But just the fact that that person survived that and that that could happen and that it is possible. And then when you see yourself in that person, you know, that's when you're taking that, that person with you. Because again, in, in L&D, that's, that's usually the type of stories we're trying to tell. We're trying to take them with us, not just impress them. And, you know, I mean, when I said I, I started my career in, tech, in computer tech support, you know, these were, the instructors were the guys, which are usually guys with two beepers, you know, beeper here, beeper there. And they would just tell these stories about how they drove in the middle of the night to reboot a server. And they were so brave. And their only point was to impress us. That, that was it they didn't tell us why the server had to be rebooted or what they had to do or what else they had to do didn't matter they just wanted you to know why but in their mind their intent was that was educating you but that that's not what happened the point i got was that you wanted us to know that you are you know amazing in that way so you know sometimes people who are very successful i they struggle to remember the journey they kind of go you know, I wanted to do it, so I did it. What are you referring to there? What is that? So sometimes it's hard to get people to remember, you know, what they went through. It also shows a vulnerability that they don't really want to share. So, yeah, and sometimes it doesn't happen like that. Like sometimes the story, you think the story is framed, that I was this and then 10 minutes later I was that. It may have been 20 years. You may have learned it several times, that lesson, over and over and over again. And you got to just a little, 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 little until you're like, oh, this is, this is what that all meant. 
ultimately. So, you know, it's, it's pointing to different incidents in your life and then sort of pulling them back to a larger meaning. Yeah. And, you know, if, if we take it back to like training, those spotlight stories don't mm-hmm. affect performance goals. Right. They do anything for performance goals, right? Because what we, people learn from struggle. You don't learn from like everything was nice and yeah, you learn from your coworkers' mistakes and the things that they did. And you're like, oh, I'm never doing that because, you know, this person mm-hmm. went through that. Huh. So yeah. if the goal is that performance, then showing that struggle and the mistakes is probably more effective than absolutely Mm -hmm. do you have any guidance for um, because you talked about you know vulnerability and the word that came to mind from Brene Brown about the vulnerability hangover so you know like oh no like I told this story maybe I wasn't ready to tell it do you whether it's the facilitator or the participants do you provide any kind of guidance in advance or do you have any strategies for Mm -hmm. like determining what stories I should share you know in a given moment that I share yeah, it's interesting. You don't, I don't, I can't remember. I've read so much of her stuff. I don't know what came from me and what came from her. But I always tell people, you don't owe the world a breakdown. When we talk about emotional, you do not owe the world that at all. So just start from that point. You do not owe them a breakdown. I think another thing too is sometimes when we share those vulnerable moments, we are very, so much, sometimes a little addicted to the reaction we think we're going to get from it. And I think she said, she said this on some show where she said, the victory of sharing your vulnerability, I'm paraphrasing, the victory of sharing your vulnerability is that you did it not from other people's reaction to it. You know, so I think that's, you know, something to keep in mind as well, which kind of goes back to why are you sharing this? What, what are you really trying to do here? Are you, do you want people to tap into their, their inner something and connect to you? Or do you want you just want them to know what you what you went through and how impressed you, they are about that. Like, what is your intent there? I think that's one. It's again that line between open and nope is being almost surgical about being self aware enough to know I shouldn't talk about this, so I should talk about that. And what defense mechanisms do you have in place that could be triggering that? So, like, if I were in that situation and I feel like I'm sharing something that I, there's a line that I feel like I've crossed my, I'm going to automatically start joking about it, right? In order to sort of, that's my way to backpedal, you know, away from it. And that's kind of risky because someone could have been right on the precipice of like, yes, and you're sort of making light of it, you know, at that point as well. So there's a consequence to that. And um, honestly, unfortunately, you kind of learn that in public over time. You know, it's hard to know what you can't talk about and when you can't talk about until you talk about it and go, I'm never talking about that again. <laughs> you know? So that is, that is the, that's like, you know, like that, that story about the working two jobs, you know, I use that now as a story, you know, to instruct about story, but before I told it as a story, you know, and it took me a long time to learn that that is not going to serve me, even though, of course, in my mind, I'm thinking, but I'm like, oh, no, that's, that's not going to, that's not going to serve me. It's too, I would have to do too much explaining and too much, you know, norm setting for them to get it the way to, for my, for my intent to meet the purpose. So I'm going to use, I'm going to repurpose that story 
for for something else. Sometimes it's just part of the story. Like I'm just going to talk about from you know step, you know S to Z. I'm going to leave out everything you know you know ahead of it that got me there. So, um, but you know the more I think that the, the again the more surgical you are and the more you're able to select what you think is going to work and not work. You know I think that just comes with skill and time and distance. You know distance, distance, distance from that and gaining more perspective on it and seeing, you know, was it really as bad as I thought it would be? And what did I gain from that? And sometimes what you gain from it is so important and so meaningful that it's worth it. It's worth the vulnerability, it's worth the risk, it's, it's worth the share. Yeah, this is a question for you and also everybody here. Is there anything I didn't ask that, you know, you really wanted to chat about or, you know, share on this topic? Well, I mentioned when we had exchanged beforehand that one thing that I'm moving towards in storytelling, first of all, is personal storytelling as opposed to always in this sort of instructional design sense, uh, but personal storytelling. But also many of us are in a position where we have to get stories out of people. Or we have to show them how to get stories. So I am putting together, which I'm gonna launch next March, a, um, 2024, a story guide program. And so what that does is not only do you learn about storytelling, but it's assuming you have some basic knowledge in it, but the whole point of it is to teach you how to help people to navigate these discussions and you can use it if you're a coach you can use it um, in just your regular just for yourself or to help your friends do interviews or when you're working with subject matter experts and you're trying to get information out of them you can use these strategies as a way to do that and that's not something that you see a lot usually all the all the curricula is based on you learning how to tell a story but that's not always what I'm trying to do. Like I'm trying to get you to tell the story and it's not the same. Me knowing how to do something is not the same. But also too, I don't have to necessarily have to be an expert storyteller to get a story out of you either if I have the right skills. So that's when I, I'm always gonna be sort of in the teaching you how to tell a story space, but I'm sort of moving on to this other, this next sort of phase in the storytelling journey. That, that's important because I, I haven't seen anything like that out there. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you this, when you're eliciting these stories, you kind of become a therapist in a way because you don't know what you're going to get. And that's part of it too. <laughs> I have this whole know what emotion. Be careful. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you don't know what emotion, you don't know what traumatic story you're going to get. Like yeah. you don't know how it's going to go, like how the other people, if you're like in a group, how the other people are going to react to that story. So that's yeah. like intense. <laughs> yeah, it's intense. And it's Need knowing training. how to give them that kind of ownership of, instead of you probing and probing, you just probe for them to uh -huh. give you information, you know? So it's these different sort of coaching and discussion strategies and different ways to get them to come, not for you to pull them up, but to get them to rise up, you know, is is really part of it. And, it, and it's creating that safe space. And it's, you know, for showing people how to do it in groups, how to do it one-on-one, -on -one, how to do it in Zoom. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited for it. Hopefully there's an interest out there in learning how to do that. So yeah, excited about it. That's amazing. And, you know, if people would like to learn more about your work, Hadia, where can they find you? Well, I have it really pretty much all on my website at duetslearning.com or on LinkedIn. I have a lot of information out there as well. So those are the two places. 
Amazing. So on behalf of the Your Instructional Designer team, I just want to thank you so much for being part of our pod class today. All right. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. If this episode about stories came with a dust jacket, here's what the blurb would say. First, a story is a tool. It's important to consider intent and purpose and guide learners to choose an appropriate story to tell. Why tell a story at all? And why that story? Second, self-awareness, empathy, and mindfulness are key to creating an environment that feels supportive for personal story sharing. Third, learners need to recognize themselves in stories. Stories that deal with real-life situations, show transformation, and offer guidance can be powerful tools for inspiring and instructing others. But ultimately, the point of a story belongs to the listener. People filter stories through their own experiences. Fourth, you can shift story time from a passive to active experience by inviting people into stories. Pause periodically to ask, what do you think happened? And how would you feel if that happened? Finally, learners don't have to share their stories to benefit from storytelling. They might listen to someone else's narrative and then tap into one of their own related memories. Now it's your turn. For your experiment, you'll think back to a memorable story someone shared with you that communicated an important insight. You'll dissect what makes that story effective and then apply those insights to a story of your own. You can find the full experiment brief in the show notes or the Social Learning Lab community on Facebook. In the community, you can also share your stories, get feedback and insights from peers, and comment on others' ideas. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review, like, subscribe, or share so we can continue to build a supportive group of social learning enthusiasts. Until next time, keep making learning that matters.